Welcome or welcome back to the company of the cats. Hi! This is an update of my original video about the squishers because the first one had horrendous sound quality and I also wanted to add more things. Some parts of the original script remained the same but I tried to make it less boring for those who have already watched the original. In case this is the first time you are watching this video, I'm trying to develop theories in the realm of possibilities based on what we already know about magic in this universe. Because we are already in the fifth book and I think that we do have the basics down. We just don't have the correct order of stuff and we miss some pieces here and there. We have quite a lot of merfolk in legends around Planetos. We see merlings, deep ones, selkies, squishers and walrusmen. But the thing is that unlike the other races we have, they seem to be the most diverse. What I mean by that is that the children of the forest have the same description as the woodworkers in Essos. Even though they do not have the same name, we read the description and we all said, oh, children of the forest. Same with the others, most stories are similar all around Westeros, cold, bright blue eyes, death, etc. It's also the same with giants and unicorns and dragons. The merfolk though aren't like that. The merling legends talk about aquatic creatures with the upper body of a human and the tail of a fish. The Deep Ones were a hybrid race, according to Maester Theron, a queer misshapen race of half-men sired by creatures of the South Seas upon human women. We learned about squishers from Dick, they appear human but their heads are larger than those of men and they have scales instead of hair. They have webbed fingers and toes and green needle-like teeth as well as a belly white like that of a fish. Their name comes from the squish-squish sound they make as they move. Owen Oakenshield is said to have conquered the Sealed Islands on behalf of the First Men by driving Merling and Selkis back into the sea. Some claim the Maze Makers of Lorath were destroyed by merfolk such as Merlings, Walrusmen and Selkis, and the Wicked Knight in the Vale is said to have been friends with Merlings. And we have fishy people in Northus Othorius and in the Thousand Islands. Another peculiar instance was when Leif, while talking to Bran, said that was in the dawn of days, when our sun was rising, now it sinks, and this is our long dwindling. The giants are almost gone as well, they who were our bane and our brothers. The great lions of the western hills have been slain, the unicorns are all but gone, the mammoths down to few hundred. The direwolves will outlast us all, but their time will come as well. In the world the men have made, there is no room for them. Or us. If there was another race or creature, wouldn't she say anything about it? Are they doing okay? Are they gone or almost gone? What is going on? If they were such a widespread race and created constructs and they were so close to humans as legends claim, wouldn't she say something about them? She mentioned most legendary and extinct creatures and she didn't include them. The only creatures that weren't mentioned are dragons and the others, but these two are also the two extremes, fire and ice respectively. Even though at some point both of them vanished, as far as humans uh, are concerned, they both returned at dusk, right before the long night. And not only there are cohesive myths and legends about them, but we have also seen them in the current timeline. Squishers are not similar to these two, and we also have different descriptions of them depending on the area. Martin tends to use specific words to evoke specific images, and he does the same with sounds. He always does this, horns, stuff falling, walking. He generally puts the audio effects on paper, and one of these sound effect words is the word squish, which he uses when he wants to describe what sounds. The first time we see it is when Arya throws food at Sansa in A Game of Thrones. It caught her in the middle of the forehead with a wet squish and plopped down into her lap. Of course, we also see it when we got the story about the squishers. They're always damp and fishy smelling, but behind these blubbery lips, they got rows of green teeth sharp as needles. Some say the first man killed them all, but don't you believe it? They come by night and steal bad little children. 
padding along on the webbed feet with a little squish squish sound. The girls they keep to breed with, but the boys they eat, tearing at them with those sharp green teeth. Every other time it is used, it's when people step on something wet, walking on slash or on mud, stepping on wet ground, or wearing wet shoes. We even see it describing Maribel's footsteps in another Brian chapter. So it's not necessary for someone to have webbed toes to make this sound. Now the pointed teeth also doesn't mean much because we have seen them in two other cultures. Both the people from the Thousand Islands and the cave dwellers in the Frostfangs file their teeth. Additionally, the Thousand Isles folk have a greenish tinge in their skin while the cave dwellers paint their faces green, blue and purple. We know that in the Thousand Islands they worship fish-headed gods and make sacrifices to them. And the cave dwellers worship dark underground gods, and we know that deep down into the earth there is water, a sunless sea. In northern Sothorios, we also have the same story. There are ruins of an ancient civilization on the Isle of Toads, and the modern inhabitants are believed to descend from those who carved the Toad Stone. They are described as having an unpleasant fish-like aspect to their faces, and many have webbed hands and feet. And the deep ones are hybrids, according to Maester Theron. To me, all this seem human, or at least part human. They don't sound like a completely different race, and I really believe that if there was a race like this, Leaf would have said something when she was talking to Bran, except if they live in the depths, she said not even her people have gone, but if this is the case, then neither humans should know, since they are talking about an era where all three were in Westeros, apparently. First of all, we cannot be 100% sure which parts are exaggerations and which are not. Stories with time tend to get more and more magical, so there is always the possibility many of them are heavily embellished, since apart from the market that the Borels have and the resurrections of Patchface and Daron, we don't really have proof of anything. <laughs> we are told that some people file their teeth, so the needle-like teeth could easily be something like this. The green skin, again, is a sailor story. For all we know, it was paint, tattoos or whatever, since they are very isolated and xenophobic. Sailors hardly stay there since they sacrifice them to their gods, so Corlys is pretty much our only source and he could have easily been repeating what he heard from the Ibanese or what they saw from the source, because from what I get at least, they didn't stay there. The scales instead of hair could be some kind of headgear. It could also be tattoos, scarification on shaved heads, and this is only mentioned in Dick's legend. So again, not a reliable source. For all we know, it's a detail added later since stories and legends change every time someone repeats them. In the current timeline, people talk bullshit about skin changers all the time. They call them beasts and believe that they turn into literal animals when we know that this isn't the case. When Stark changed into a wolf, his Northmen did the same. The mark of the beast was on them all. Works birth other works by a bite. It is well known. The only thing we know with certainty is true, at least appearance-wise, is about the membranes. And again, we do not know whether everyone had them, or if it was between all their fingers, because in Westeros they appear only in the Borel line, as far as we are aware. But in Sothorios, we are told that a lot of people have them, again, not all of them. When I was talking with my sister about the squishers, I said that all this sounds like an ironborn raid, and she agreed, and also pointed out that wet boots make squish sounds all the time in the novels. They come when still dark from the sea, they kill the boys and take the girls to breed with. The ironborn spill blood on the moon, so obviously the moon is visible on the water since they attack at dawn. They take salt wives and they are brutal warriors. People of the Dawn Age believe that the ironborn were demons from watery hells. And the squishers are pretty much the same. I have said in previous videos that it seems like the ironborn culture changed at some point significantly. They even say, 
what is dead may never die, and they believe that they are reborn after their drowning. It definitely seems like they had a pre-hammer and an after-hammer culture. The pike and the seastone chair were there before the hammer of the waters, and I think that Victorian's story too, and his character in general, support this theory too. He is a devout follower of the drowned god, but his beliefs have started to shift a little bit because he met Mokoro. Two gods are with him now. I will not talk a lot about it here. I have three videos on the Ironborn where I explain my take. They definitely were seafarers, even before the hammer, living on the western coast, and from the chair I can guess that the Roji religion was a very fishy water-related one. And we are told that they had necromancers and that they were meddling with magic in general, so maybe they also did have different customs like teeth filing or somewhat different clothing, and maybe war paint or tattoos, because the other places we know fishy, slimy stuff exist are the Toad Isle in Sothorios, where the people are also described as fishy, and the Thousand Islands where the women only file their teeth as a custom. It's not a mutation or anything. And the people in the coastal areas had it hard because they lost land and were also hit by tsunamis, so it makes sense for them to start raiding and moving around to find resources and maybe a better place to settle. Similarly to the real world sea people who were a seafaring confederation that attacked ancient regions in the eastern Mediterranean during the late Bronze Age collapse. Put the situation in a universe where the inland inhabitants didn't have a close relationship to the sea. And people in the narrow sea didn't know about the western coastal people since the arm didn't allow passage. The arm of Dorn broke and not only they have natural catastrophes to deal with, some random people also showed up and started to raid and pillage their towns, since the word squeezers is used only by the Westerosi in the narrow sea. They obviously thought of them as demons from the sea since they had no idea who the hell these people were. And if they had distinct physical traits that they've now lost, because with the number of salt waves they took and in the bread with, their appearance has probably changed by now. Or had different traditions and weird clothing compared to the first men's, it stands to reason that the rest of the people would think of them as non-humans. They already thought of them as demons from watery hells. Add extra points if they used magic, which I am guessing was the case, since it seems like everyone was at that point. And the fact that most myths and legends get awfully exaggerated with time, as we have seen with skin changers. I will talk more about the fishiness in a bit, but I think you get the gist. According to Dick, they were not living in the sea. They came from there and stayed close to the shores. They were forced to camp among some rocks, 50 yards above the tide line. A place like this, there might be squishers. He also said that they didn't ride horses, something that is pointed out quite a lot about the Ironborn and the Sisterman too. He's no squisher, that's bloody certain. Their sword don't ride horses. And obviously they didn't die easily either, we are told that they are very good and brutal fighters. The people from the sea that attacked Lorath uh, could also have been raiders. The isles got hit hard by the sea rise, it seems as if the area wasn't even a bunch of islands originally. There are mazes on mainland Essos too, so it was a uniform area. And people started to raid there too, something also very common in real life. Until the original inhabitants eventually just vanished. In the rich where we also hear about merlings, we are told that Oak and Seal drove them out of the Sealed Islands. So we are definitely talking about humans, because if the merlings had tails like in some myths, they would live in the sea, not on the islands. So Oak and Seal wouldn't have a reason to push them out, and it wouldn't be that easy to fight them either. But if they both wanted the same space, similar to what happened with the Children of the Forest and the Giants, then it makes sense. And that brings me to the three sisters. Lorath is very close to the Vale, and Cracklow Point is also very close to the Vale. And in the Vale, we do have people with finger webs, and unlike other areas in Westeros, the Winged Knight there was friendly with giants, children of the forest, and merlings. 
So I'm guessing they let people stay in the islands around the Vale just fine and had a decent relationship with them, since the sisters were not the only island where people related to Merlings lived. We also have the Witch Isle, the seat of House Upcliff, and the only member we know about was Ursula Upcliff, a sorceress who called herself wife of the Merlin King. We do not know much about Pups and Pebble, but they are small islands relatively close to the sisters that came under the rule of House Arryn sometime later, like all the islands around the Vale. In the Three Sisters, we have easily one of the most WTF minor houses in the series, House Borel. One of the first things we learn about them is that they are keepers of the Night Lamb in Sister John, one of the beacons along the coastline of the Isles. Along with the other beacons, it is supposed to warn and lead ships through a safe passage, but on stormy nights and foggy ones, the Borels use false lights to draw ships to their doom, so they can take their cargo. Stannis had warned them to stop, otherwise they are gonna be executed, but obviously they still do it, considering they served freaking saffron spice stew to Davos. The second thing we learn is that they have the mark, webbing between the middle three fingers in the right hand. The head of the house, Borel, and his granddaughter have it like all Borels for 5,000 years. The house before the coming of the Andals were pirate kings. Godric said, when there were kings on the sisters, we did not suffer darts to live. We cast them all into the sea as an offering to the gods. The septons made us stop that, a pack of pious fools. The house was there before the coming of the Andals and became part of the Vale because they wanted to get rid of the Northmen during the rape of the Three Sisters. Lord Godric's forebears had been pirate kings until the Starks came down on them with fire and sword. These days the Sistermen left open piracy to Salador's son and his ilk and confined themselves to wrecking. It is obvious that the Sistermen, along with the Ironborn, were in Westeros before the Andals but had a vastly different culture to the rest of the Firstmen. The last Isles to be wedded to the Vale were the Three Sisters. For thousands of years, these islands had boasted their own cruel kings, pirates and raiders, whose longships sailed the Bight, the Narrow Sea, and even the Severing Sea, with impunity, plundering and raving as they could, and returning to the sisters, laden with golden slaves. Sound familiar, doesn't it? It sounds extremely similar to the Ironborn, and we have some instances where they are mentioned in the same chapter. As with the first men, the dynasties of the Andal River kings oft proved short-lived, for enemies surrounded the realms on every side. Ironmen from the Isles raided their coast to the west, while pirates from the steppes of the Three Sisters did the same to the east. They also raided the north, the Wolf's Den was built for this exact reason, to protect the river against raids. During the wars between Winterfell and the Andal King of the Mountain and the Vale, the old falcon Osgudarin laid siege to the Wolf's Den. His son, King Oswin the Talon, captured it and put it to the torch. Later it fell under attack from the pirate lords of the Three Sisters. The Vale is the place in Westeros that is the closest to Essos. If the Sistermen raided, I don't even know for how many years, places around the Severing Sea, then I bet Lorath was one of them. The same goes for the Narrow Sea and Cracklow. They were raiders and they also have webbed fingers. I think both groups were initially the same people and got separated during the Hammer of the Waters. The Iron Islands obviously drowned partially during the Hammer. There are myths and legends about the area being drowned and the chair as well as Pike were already there when the Isles were later resettled by the Ironborn. During natural catastrophes and when people free from one place all at the same time, and let's be honest, in a hurry, because their fucking life is at stake, they get split up, obviously. From the stories we get, it seems like they raided and tried to settle along the western coastline, and it makes sense. And from the stories, we also get that they were not as well liked over there. Big surprise. <laughs> Plus, I don't know how easily it could have been to sail on the sea, considering the havoc the hammer caused. Both the Ironborn and the Sistermen used rivers to sail to inland Westeros. 
And the Iron Islands are next to the riverlands, and we know for a fact they use these rivers as a means of transportation. The importance of the trident to the region was never made clearer than when King Harwin Hor, the grandfather of Harren the Black, fought over the riverlands with the Storm King, Arek. The Ironborn ravers were able to achieve dominance on the rivers and use them as a means to transport forces swiftly between far-flung strongholds and battlefields. It is fairly easy to pass the ships from the area Sigurd is now to the Blue Fork. Harwin did it, and it was not a secret that people were using major rivers for this purpose. If you sail through the rivers, you can get much faster and safely to the Narrow Sea and other areas where you might find a place to stay. All the rivers flow into the Narrow Sea, and specifically to places we have stories about Merfolk. I think that the Sistermen were part of these people, and through the rivers and the marshes reached the Bight. The Ironborn say they are closer kin to fish than men, but the Sistermen are the ones with the mark, not them. We know for a fact that both the Sistermen and the Ironborn had thralls and slaves, people they capture and raids, but unlike the Ironborn, the people from the Sisters do not say anything about salt wives. So maybe unlike the people in the Iron Islands, they retained some of their ancestral physical traits because they were married to each other and not to outsiders. Plus the sistermen raiding nearby, like the Ironborn did, explained the existence of a huge castle, Moat Kaelin. Apart from the obvious questions about the fort, like who built it and when, my main question was always why? built such a huge castle in the marshes. But if indeed the Marsh Kings were as powerful before the Starks eradicated them, as singers claim, then it stands to reason that the duty of protecting the marshes and the rivers would fall on them, like Sigurd with the Iron Islands. Looking at the maps, Maud Kaelin could prevent both the Ironborn from passing through the fever and the Sistermen from passing inland through the marshes. The Ironborn before the Targaryens and the Sistermen before the rape were a huge problem for the inland inhabitants. So it makes sense for a fort this huge to be there in the first place because the fact that the children of the forest allegedly used it doesn't really matter. The construction was done by humans and the fort itself was obviously a very important and powerful one. Right now we have saltwater marshes at the neck, but back then, if indeed a second hammer happened at some point, the area would have most likely been similar to the rest of the riverlands, meaning rivers, and most likely marshes, but not as extensive and maybe not salty. So it would have been easily passable for the eastern side by ship too. All this also explains why the Ironborn are so freaking afraid of the trees, ravens, and the children, even though their islands were never, as far as we know, inhabited by the children of the forest. If these seafaring people at some point try to pass through the rivers in the riverlands, meaning the hotspot of the children of the forest at the time, and saw trees and ravens looking at them and were also attacked by magic forest people, then it kinda makes sense for them to freak out. He had no love of maesters. The raven were creatures of the storm god, and he did not trust their healing, not since Yuri. The trees were huge and dark, somehow threatening. The trees hate us all, deep into their wooden hearts. These trees will kill us if they can. Hagen lowered his horn. If we die with dry feet... How we will find our way to the drowned gods' watery halls. These woods are full of little streams, Krom assured him. All of them lead to the rivers, and all the rivers to the sea. A difference we see between the Ironborn and the Sistermen is the religion. The Sistermen's religion, I think, is closer to the original one, closer than the religion of the drowned god, actually. They too believe in sea-related nature gods, and they make sacrifices by drowning people. They have the Lady of the Waves and the Lord of the Sky, and it makes sense 
The sea was their element and the sky is associated with the weather and winds, which is again a very important element for a seafaring culture. Very often, the deities responsible for giving food were associated with birth and are therefore female, so it makes sense to worship the lady of the waves, since the sea is their main food source. Garth and other male deities, very often sky gods associated with fertility, were the ones making the earth fertile, as Zeus and Dimitra kind of thing. So here we see the female sea and the male sky god, and the storms were a sign of their mating. Storms were sacred on the isles, and to be honest, I think they believe this because of the many shipwrecks in the area. When you are a seafarer, storms are not the best, yes. But these people were also the ones controlling the beacons, and they took and keep on taking advantage of these during stormy nights by misleading the ships and taking their cargo after they smash on the shores. No ship they think of the storms as sacred, even without the beacons, if the islands were in an area where ships with produce would get wrecked regularly due to bad weather, then the reverence towards the storms makes a lot of sense, I think. And let's not forget about the children of the forest. With time, humans realize that, oh, these creatures are one race. Let's call them children of the forest. But we do not know if this was the case from the beginning. If they saw some weird creatures close to the sea with scales, since apparently one of them is named Scales, that were also controlling sea animals, maybe they did create some songs, myths and legends about merfolk based on them. All in all though, attacking like this and stealing women is not something the children were doing and many of the myths do not point to singers. Although they might have inspired some, all these stories sound like humans, seafarers and raiders that were meddling with water magic. Before talking about the fishy traits like the mark, I want to say something about magic. Water magic, salty or not, is a part of the nature magic that the children of the forest do. Not only water is fundamental natural element, but we are also told that the children believed in the gods of forest, stream and stone. That Howland could breed mud and rat on leaves and change earth to water and water to earth, with no more than a whispered word. The marshes of the neck are saltwater marshes, and Mira and Zodzen swore by earth and water, bronze and iron, ice and fire. Salt is a part of nature itself and fundamental for life, and salty water is still water and a part of nature magic. I will talk about salt later too, but for now I think this gets the point across. The Roinish water witches also knew secret spells that made dry streams flow again and deserts bloom, and the skin changers could shift into any animal they wanted, aquatic animals included, and they used the hammer of the waters to make the seas rise. Under all these weirwoods in Brand's cave, we are told that there is a deep dark sea like the wells in the roots of Yggdrasil, so water magic, salty or not, is just nature magic, and it makes sense. No water, no nature. And no salt, no life as we know it, basically. So, yeah. In general, as far as we know, magic can meddle with one's appearance when used excessively. Mokoro is inhumanly black, not the nut brown of the samurai islanders on their swan ships, or the red brown of the Dothraki horse lords, not the charcoal and earth color of the dusky woman's skin, but black, blacker than coal, blacker than jet, blacker than a raven's wing, burn, Victorian thought. Samurai islanders are not only nut brown, by the way, they have, of course, a variety of skin colors. These include nut brown, teak, ebony, and polished jet, with the last two being in the dark-skinned black. Vicky is a raider. He is familiar with Samuel Islanders, and even if he said the most common shade, which is not brown, he would still remember if he had seen someone as dark. And the same thing goes for Melisandre. Her hair is not just ginger or auburn, 
and her eyes are not amber or reddish brown, they are red and unsettling. He could see her. The heart-shaped face, the red eyes, the long coppery hair, her red gowns moving like flames as she walked, a swirl of silk and satin. Plus, we do not know what is going on under the illusions. She herself is thinking that she is going through some weird ass transformation. Food. Yes, I should eat. Some days she forgot. Rolot provided her with all the nourishment her body needed. But that was something best concealed from mortal men. Weird outer appearance doesn't mean non-human. We know Mel is human. One day, Melisandre prayed she would not sleep at all. One day she would be free of dreams. Melanie, she thought, lot 7. If Mel and Mokoro have a natural skin color and eye and hair color, the green tints in the stories about the Thousand Islands could be because of similar practices. Same with other types of magic. The green seers become one with the tree in time. We have seen some phrases like Borok looks so much like his board that all he lacked was tasks. And the skin changers in general tend to present characteristics and behaviors similar to their animals. In the A Dance with Dragons prologue, we are told that people who skin change birds, even in their own skins, they sit moony staring up at the bloody blue. So if there were people using seawater magic as frequently and as strong, they could have fishy traits. And that would explain why we only have these traits in people in Toad Isle and Thousand Islands now. Both these groups still do sacrifices and they probably use magic too. And that brings me to the mark. Because the word mark is used over and over again about people with skin change abilities. Greyguard's a good place for the likes of you, I'm thinking. Well away from decent godly folk. The mark of the beast is on you, bastard. The mark of the beast is on him, that wolf of his. Let go of me, you will rue the day you laid hands on Janos Lind. And not only, they tell Arya about how the many-faced god marks those who are to receive the gift. And are you a god to decide who should live and who should die, he asked her. We give the gift to those marked by him of many faces, after prayers and sacrifice. Bloodraven told us about the green seers and how the gods mark them with different eyes. In the Three Sisters, they also think that dwarfism is a mark, a mark that these people are monsters and that they need to be sacrificed to the sea. Why would the gods give a man such a shape but to mark him as a monster? The mark is most likely an indication of magical blood. It doesn't mean that they are half fish. Skin changing is possible to be done with aquatic creatures, as we know, and the children of the forest might be scaly themselves. And that leaves the scales instead of hair. Apart from the fact that we know Roiners wore fish-headed helmets and ironborn other helmets inspired by sea creatures, we also have grayscale. Maesters and scepters alike agreed that children marked by grayscale could never be touched by the rarer mortal form of the affliction, nor by its terrible swift cousin, the Grey Plague. Damp is said to be the culprit, he said, foul humors in the air, not curses. The conquerors did not believe either, Hugo Hill, said Gisilla. The men of Volantis and Valyria hung Garin in a golden cage and made mock of him as he called upon the mother to destroy them. But in the night the waters rose and drowned them, and from the day to this they have not rested. They are down there, still beneath the waters, they who were once the lords of fire. The cold breath rises from the mark to make these fogs, and their flesh has turned as stony as their hearts. We know the Ironborn often suffer from grayscale, and we do not know what it is exactly, because something is off and it doesn't look like a normal illness. If this thing is magical and also looks scaly, if the first men weren't familiar and saw some of these seafaring people afflicted by it, they obviously thought scales, considering the name grayscale. All in all, most of these weird-ass traits to me sound like humans using magic. Add changes that could be their own doing, as I said before, and you get some pretty unusual-looking people. And that leaves the resurrections because this is the weirdest thing in my opinion. 
we have people like Aaron and Patsface, something is going on because unlike other people who died and came back, they aren't white. What happened to them is what happened to Bran, I think, but without the skin-changing ability and the guidance of the crow. When you die, you get through the door of death, but if you linger long enough, without actually passing, like Bran who was in a coma, you are in a weird state of limbo where you can see things, since apparently when you peek through the door of death, you get the gift of prophecy and visions. The crown peeked through the door and she had visions. Bran and Jordan did too. Aidon and Pat drowned. An average person can last between 1 to 3 minutes before falling unconscious and around 10 minutes before dying. It's a very bad way to go and not a quick one either. So both Aaron and Pat's face stayed in the state for long enough to start seeing stuff and wanted to linger longer so they could not die. Both these people were quite young, Pat was a kid and Aaron was around 16 to 20 and obviously they panicked as Bran panicked while he was falling and before he flew. In a Dance with Dragon prologue we learn a lot of things about the spirit and skin changing. When Varamir was inside the burning eagle he said this, when he tried to fly from it his terror found the flames and made them burn hotter. We also learned that men were not meant to leave the earth, spend too much time in the clouds and you never want to come back down again. I know skin changers who dried hawks, owls, ravens, even in their own skins, they sit moony staring up at the bloody blue. And that also applies to water I'm guessing, and it's probably even stronger. If birds are vastly different from humans and are most of the time in the sky and not on earth, then fish are even more different. And these pieces of info came from people with the ability to move their spirits since birth. When Aaron and Pat's face were drowning, they stayed in limbo enough to start seeing things. But they freaked out, obviously, and they couldn't remove their spirits from their body, which I'm guessing is what happens when someone is dying. Mel says that sleep is a little death and dreams are sent to people by the Great Other. At least this is what I have gotten from the things we learned in the novels. In this Mel chapter, in the Varamir prologue, and in the uh, Game of Thrones uh, Bran chapter while he's dreaming. Varamir had fire all around him and couldn't pass. Since according to Mel, fire has all the attributes people associate with it in various real-life cultures and mythologies. Fire is considered to be an agent of purity and a symbol of righteousness and truth, and one reason for burning witches was that they couldn't escape since fire was holy. This is pretty much what we see here, Varamir couldn't escape easily because of the fire. Pats and Aaron didn't have fire all around them, but they did have something else that is considered magical and it is used to purify both in the novels and in real life. Salt. Salt has long held an important place in religion and culture and as I mentioned before, it's a fundamental part of nature, it is a necessity of life. All animals need salt, it is a mineral that has been used since ancient times in many cultures as a seasoning a preservative, a disinfectant, a component of ceremonial offerings, and as a unit of exchange. Even the notion of holy water most likely started from salt water since it is a good solution to use to disinfect and treat wounds. In the novels, sea water is considered holy by the ironborn. There is also the salt and bread custom. The custom of serving bread and salt to guests is a reoccurring reference in the books. It is a welcome ritual that serves not only as a Westerosi tradition of hospitality, but also as a formal assurance of guest right a sacred bond of trust and honor guaranteeing that nobody in attendance, hosts and guests alike shall be harmed. Violating the guest rights is widely considered among the most atrocious moral crimes. This custom is also a real-life one in the Middle East, the Balkans, in Nordic, Slavic and Baltic countries. The bread is chosen because it is a staple food and in many cultures bread is a metaphor for basic necessities and living conditions. Salt is used because it signifies 
permanence, loyalty, durability, fidelity, usefulness, value, and purification. So as you can see, some of the salt attributes are very similar to the ones attributed to fire, but milder and less destructive. In ancient Greece, and pretty sure in other cultures as well, during the new moon ceremonies, along with water, salt was thrown into flames of fire, creating crackling noise to invoke the gods so they can accept the offerings. In the novels There is the World 2, which not only has salt all over it to help with the ice, but the melting ice itself has been described as salty. And the wall is a very strong magical barrier. The Ironborn say bless him with salt, and when the ceremony of drowning was happening, Theon commented on how the salt burns. It burns his eyes, yet another similarity with fire. So maybe Aaron and Pat's face didn't have fire all over him to stop them from getting out of their body like Varamir, but they did have salt water all around them and they were also panicking like Bran was while he was falling, but unlike Bran, they didn't have guidance and they for sure remember the way they died, since Aaron says that he visited the halls of the drowned god. So it makes sense that they would go mad, along with being able to have weird dreams and visions. Generally, skin changing, literal like areas, or even just an out-of-body experience, seems to be a dangerous thing, and the person needs to be careful and calm. Extreme emotions while doing it seem to make the whole experience very traumatic and damaging. This is what I think is going on with the watery resurrections, pretty much. The salt around them holds the spirits inside their body, and they panic enough to fly, like Bran, they swim. And if this is the case, obviously they are not okay mentally after, since they undergo all this while having a panic attack, and on top of that, they see some serious weird shit in visions. And we know from the House of the Undying and all the underground mazes that looking where you're not supposed to look can turn you mad. Also, it could explain the drowning of the followers of the Drowned God, since it could be quite useful, I'm guessing, if one of these people stays connected and keeps on having visions uh, after the resuscitation. Uh, This is it. I wanted to re-upload this video because it's one of my favorite topics in the novels, and I had so much fun writing it, but the sound after the upload to YouTube got messed up and I wanted to add some bits here and there. If you rewatched it, I hope you enjoyed it more than the previous one and you weren't bored. And if this was the first time listening to it, I hope you people were not disappointed with the not very conventional theory about the underwater things. But from what we know about magic, it is the most logical explanation in my opinion. If you enjoyed the video, press a like, subscribe to the channel if you haven't, and comment whatever you want to comment. Until the next one, bye!